Gracious God, I pray now that as my words line up with your words, they would, that they would fall on ears and hearts ready to receive them and respond. And God, if I say anything that isn't from you, I pray that those words would quickly be forgotten. I pray these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Mike. I'm one of the priests here at Truro. Hello to you joining us online. We're glad you're here as well. This morning, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 5. So if you brought a Bible, go ahead and please turn with me there. If you didn't, that's okay. They're in your, pew bi- uh, in your pews, page 1094, Luke chapter 5. Or of course, you can Google Luke chapter 5 on your phone. Get yourself there, no problem. This is the story about how a fisherman named Simon, who Jesus would rename Peter, came to follow Jesus. It's a story about how a fisherman named Simon, who had come to be known as Peter, came to follow Jesus. When I was in grade school, my mother went back to school in the evenings to get a master's degree. And I remember her writing this huge thesis on the works of the author Frederick Beekner. I remember because we, you know, it took forever to load up computers, and I remember that she'd print off drafts for editing of her thesis on those computer papers that were connected, that would fold one after the other after the other, and then you had to peel the little sides off of them. I remember seeing stacks of this thesis. I didn't start reading Beekner, despite the fact that my mother spent years of my childhood reading Beekner until seminary. And trust me, everyone should read Beekner. But there was one theme I noticed kept turning up in his work as I started to read him. It's summarized in this one line that maybe you've heard before. Beekner wrote, listen to your life. See it for the fathomless mystery it is. In the boredom and pain of it, no less than in the excitement and gladness. Touch, taste, smell your way to the holy and hidden heart of it. Because in the last analysis, all moments are key moments, and life itself is grace. In the last analysis, all moments are key moments. And life itself is grace. It's easy to hear a story like today's gospel reading in Luke chapter 5 and think that Jesus is primarily interested in grand gestures and dramatic leave everything behind and move across the world yeses. The sort of yes we see from Peter here in verse 11 who leaves behind his boat, leaves behind his business, the, the very life he knew, And even the miraculous payday that was to be found in sinking boats full of fish to follow Jesus. Certainly, Jesus meets us in the dramatic from time to time. And those moments ought to be celebrated and shared. But the vast majority of life with Jesus isn't like that. More often than not, life with Jesus is marked by small seemingly insignificant moments with him. Moments that are really only noticeable if we really pay attention. But moments that are absolutely vital in shaping and especially growing and deepening 
our relationship with Jesus. As Beekner said, in the last analysis, all moments are key moments. This morning, we're going to zoom in a bit in Luke chapter 5 to the first 10 verses beyond the miraculous catch of fish and Peter's dramatic yes. And instead, we're going to pay attention to the half dozen seemingly little moments between Jesus and Peter in the story that we normally might zip right past to get to the big decision. Half a dozen easily overlooked interactions, the small and subtle yeses that prepare Peter for the miracle and the big yes of verse 11. No matter where you are in your relationship with God today, whether he feels far away or absent and your faith feels stunted and stilted, or whether you're experiencing a great deal of intimacy in your relationship with God at the moment, I I think we'll see in these little steps of faith, steps towards Jesus, steps that you and I can and ought to take towards him today. Steps that will grow and deepen our relationship with him. So let's dive in. Luke writes, starting at verse 1, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put him out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now, Look closely with me at verse 3. And circle, if you brought your own Bible, that little bit, which was Simon's. Have you ever noticed before that Jesus is actually in Peter's boat? I had never noticed that. Some of you are nodding. You are more attentive readers than I. It wasn't until this week when I zoomed in, I was like, oh, wow, he's actually in Peter's boat. Peter's a fisherman, and Jesus is teaching from his boat. Not only that, if you look closely here at verse 3, Jesus actually asks Peter, Peter, will you push me out from land? So Jesus could take advantage of the natural sort of amphitheater that comes uh, over the course of water. So, So he's in Peter's boat. He asks Peter to push him out just a bit so that he can teach. I love this. Jesus meets Peter where he is. He goes to him, and then he actually asks Peter to help him to participate in his work in this small, easily overlooked way. Before asking Peter to do anything else, he gives him a way to serve with his hands and with his stuff. Before asking Peter to do anything dramatic, he asks him to serve with his hands and with his stuff. This is the first of the little yeses, the smaller, easily overlooked interactions between Peter and Jesus. And y'all, no matter how near or far Jesus feels to you today, one of the easiest and surest ways to deepen your intimacy with him is to find a way to serve him with your hands. And give him a way to use your stuff. Find a way to serve him with your hands and give him a way to use your stuff. What Peter does here, it's not particularly dramatic. He wasn't even using the boat. No harm off his back, right? 
and pushes them off to shore. You and I could do that. I've done that before. I've pushed a boat off of shore. These are the sorts of things that anyone could do. And friends, we ought to be looking for opportunities to serve Jesus with our hands and with our stuff. Ways that don't need to be dramatic. They don't need to be mind-blowing or even particularly costly. Things that anyone could do. You could take out your neighbor's trash in the name of Jesus. You could shoot hoops with your kid. Take your grandkids for a walk. You could help serve, serve coffee and donuts at church. Find a way to bless teachers in your local school. You can bring your coworker a coffee if you're ever back in the office in person. Find a way to use your hands to serve Jesus. And then share your stuff. Let your friend borrow your car when his is in the shop. Open up your house to someone. Invite them over for dinner. Bring somebody dinner. Find a way to let Jesus use your stuff. Let's be real, it's not really our stuff anyway. It's all his. He loans it to us entrusts it to us for a season. It's his. Nonetheless, he's entrusted it to us. Let's find a way to serve him with our stuff. That's first. Now, look at this in verse four. Luke writes, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master. Now, originally I had a bit here about Peter calling Jesus Master, and I do think that's important, I'm not entirely sure it's not tongue-in-cheek given what's to follow, but I'm going to set the master a bit aside for just a moment. We'll come back to that in a bit. This, the second observation that I'd like to make this morning, look at what Jesus does. He goes to Peter, and what's Peter's job? He's a fisherman, so he meets Peter on the shore of a lake, goes to him, and engages Peter on his turf. Specifically, Jesus finds Peter in his workplace and engages him there in Peter's work. He goes to a fisherman and talks to him about fishing. Now, if you pay attention, I think you'll find that Jesus is at work already in your own workplace. He was for Peter. He was already there in Peter's workplace getting stuff done on the move. He's already there, active, on the move in your workplace too, just looking for ways to engage you in your work and among your colleagues. Jesus cares about Peter's work. He meets him there. He engages him in it, and Peter engages with Jesus in return. He listens and responds. Too often, we bifurcate our work life from our spiritual life. We pretend like God doesn't care about that. I know, I know, it's easy for me to say I'm literally a priest. My work life and spiritual life, if I'm doing it right, ought to be intertwined. But it's not just our work life that we bifurcate, right? We do this with our family life, with our home life. We separate and segment parts of our life away from our spiritual life, and we end up being one person at the gym and one person at work and one person with our friends and one person with our kids and one person at church or with our spiritual friends. We do this all the time. The places where we spend the majority of our time, work or school or whatever, these places get despiritualized and separated. 
But Jesus is in each of these places, moving, active, and inviting us into what he's doing in those places already. Just as he does with Peter. We just need to pay attention. Look, even if you attend church every week, spend 30 minutes reading your Bible and praying every day, volunteer at church and maybe are in a community group, that's what, five to 10 hours at most a week? Most of us spend 40, 50, 60 hours a week working or in school or raising kids. When we begin to look for Jesus in those places where we spend the vast majority of our time, we will undoubtedly and inevitably find him. And when we participate in his work in those places, our relationship with him will grow in depth and width and richness and intimacy. Third, and I love this, Luke writes in verse five, and Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. We toiled all night and took nothing. One of the oldest, albeit somewhat passive-aggressive tricks in the book when someone asks us to do something we don't want to do is to ignore it. Anybody ever done this before? We pretend like we don't hear. My children do this all the time. My wife would say, I do this all the time. Almost all of us, we do this. All the time we pretend we didn't hear or we didn't see the email or whatever. And sometimes, no doubt, that's true. There are times where I legitimately didn't hear my wife. But sometimes that's not true. And I'm just avoiding or apathetic. We do this in our personal lives. We do this in our work lives, for sure. We also, we do it with God. We pretend not to hear him. Or we don't actually open our Bibles because we actually don't want to change or engage with him. We avoid and we make excuses. And sometimes it works. And whatever it is we're avoiding goes away for a time. But more often than not, it doesn't. And it would have just been better to engage the first time, even if we don't want to or don't understand. It's one of the things I love about Peter's response here. What Jesus is asking him to do doesn't make any sense. It's not the right time of day to catch a fish, and they haven't really been biting anyway. Peter has spent a lifetime fishing on this lake. He knows, really, he knows how to do this. I'm convinced that there is just a bit of attitude, of sass, if you will, in Peter's response here to Jesus. Master, we, we toiled all night. We took nothing. I mean, really, Jesus? You're asking us to do this? Rather than ignoring Jesus or avoiding Jesus, he complains to Jesus. He sasses him a bit. It's, it's so human. It's so engaged. It's so relational. And Jesus can handle it. The arguing with Jesus, it, it doesn't make him insecure like it might make us. He can handle the pushback because it means Peter's engaged. He's listening. He's responding. He's voicing his uncertainty. Friends, your relationship with God, my relationship with God, would be so much better off if I just talked to God more. If we argued with him more, complained to him a bit more, if we voiced our concerns and our uncertainties and our doubts, our, this doesn't make any senses. And why does it have to be like this is? The Psalms, they are chock full of prayers like this. 
God can handle our emotions and our complaints and our uncertainties. Jesus does just fine here when Peter responds this way. And I think it's a lesson for us. Can we engage with God? Bring him our complaints, our uncertainties, our reallys? He can handle it. Of course, Peter doesn't just argue. Luke writes right there, but at your word, you can sense the sigh. I will let down my nets. Now, I know we're approaching the dramatic here, but this really isn't a big deal for Peter. It isn't. He's dropped these nets a thousand times before. It might be a bit of a chore to get all the nets back out and to do it again. And yeah, he's just washed the nets, so it's probably a little bit annoying and frustrating to do it again. But Jesus is hardly asking him to leave everything and follow him here. It's like he's asking Peter to help him change a tire. Not the big a deal. Does it every day. He can do it. Here's Peter, though, listens and obeys. Even when the ask is a bit annoying, doesn't really make much sense. And y'all, Jesus asks us to do these sorts of things all the time. Things that are, you know, small, kind of annoying, frustrating, don't really make that much sense. And he asks us to do these things not just because he wants to give us a miraculous catch of fish. I mean, sometimes he does, but more often than not, he doesn't. He asks us because he wants us to learn to listen to him and obey him, to hear his voice, even when it's annoying and we don't want to. Allow me to share one personal example. I have a next door neighbor, okay? My, my wife and I, we live in a row of four townhouses and then there's a common area and another townhouse. And in this common area in between my townhouse and my neighbor's townhouse, there are four huge oak trees, you can guess what happens starting the end of September. Leaves start to fall from those oak trees. And they continue to fall from those oak trees every single day in September and October and November and December. And I love my next door neighbor, but she drives me a little wild in the autumn. She's 93 years old and she hates leaves. And so as soon as leaves start falling every afternoon without fail, unless it's raining, I can see my 93-year-old neighbor out there in the little common area in between our townhouses with the leaf blower blowing the leaves. Now, she's 93. You better believe she doesn't bag the leaves. She blows them onto my side. <laughs> because I'm a young whippersnapper with young boys, surely I can bag those leaves just fine. And what do you know? Every day, I pick up my boys from school. I'm getting home from work. I'm getting the mail. She's out there, and she doesn't matter if it's me or Jenny. She, she sees us, and she stops her leaf blower, and she comes over, and she starts complaining about the leaves. She complains about how many leaves there are. She complains about how our HOA, the conservancy, doesn't come enough to deal with the leaves. And she complains about the neighbors that just don't rake and bag the leaves like they used to. And we know she's talking about us. Now, in my head, I'm thinking, I've got three boys. They're 10, 8, and 4. My wife and I both work very full-time jobs. We've got activities up the wazoo. And the leaves are going to fall again tomorrow. 
So do I really, every day, need to go out and deal with the leaves? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's not that big a deal, right? I mean, it's not mind-blowingly huge of an ask. It's annoying, though. And it doesn't really make that much sense. I'm with the conservancy. I would bag them once a month, let them fall for a month, time it around the storms, bag them all, end of October, end of November, we're done. It's not how my neighbor wants to do it. And so every day we walk back inside, she's complained about us again, and about the leaves. And there's that voice in the back of my head that probably is the Holy Spirit saying, Mike, I know it doesn't make any sense for you to rake those leaves today. It's going to storm tonight. There's going to be a couple thousand more tomorrow. But maybe, Mike, this, this might be a good chance for you to love your neighbor. And I'm like, dang it, it doesn't make any sense. And I'm a busy man and I'm tired and I just got home from work. And we've got to leave for soccer in 30 minutes. And more often than not, I, avoid, I ignore that voice. Every once in a while, they'll be like, okay, God, you're right. And I'll grab the boys, and I'll grab the bags, and I'll grab the rake, and we'll go outside, and we'll join our neighbor raking the leaves. And there's no miraculous catch of leaves. Praise the Lord on the other side. We're not doing it in hopes that there's a miracle. We're doing it because it's loving our neighbors with our bodies, responding. And it's responding to the voice of God, asking us to do something that doesn't make much sense just because he wants us to learn to hear and respond to his voice. In verse six, Luke writes, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. They get the miracle and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that the boats actually began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Jesus gives Peter a miracle, an overwhelming, over-the-top provision of a miracle. And in just one moment, Jesus blows through the category of teacher or master, as Peter refers to him in verse 5. And Peter recognizes it. And in response, you see it right here. If you brought your own Bible, circle this. He falls down at Jesus' knees in verse 8. In the Gospels especially, posture matters. Outward physical posture is symbolic of an inward heart posture. He falls down at Jesus' knees. Friends, we are embodied people. Our physical bodies matter. How we use them and use them to respond to Jesus matters. Peter, in response to Jesus, falls down at Jesus' knees. He responds to Jesus with his body. It's a physical way of saying yes to Jesus, like kneeling when you pray or putting your hands outstretched when you come forward for communion to receive the body and blood of Jesus. It's like raising your hands in worship and surrender. It's a seemingly small step that can make a big difference over time, whether we feel it or not. 
Peter, he doesn't just fall at Jesus' knees. He acknowledges and confesses his sin before Jesus. This has been a part of Christian faith and practice for 2,000 years. We do it every week during our prayers. We're about to do it here in just a few moments. We ought to do it every day. I won't harp on it too much this morning, only to implore you, friends, respond to Jesus with your body. Posture, it matters. And please, regularly and frequently confess your sin. Not just in rote words, but acknowledging your brokenness and fallenness before a holy God. It's a little thing. It's really not so little. A little thing that changes us and shapes us, just as kneeling or receiving or raising our hands, just as listening to the voice of God, even when he asks us to do something that doesn't make much sense. Pushing Jesus off to shore, letting him use our boat. And lastly, Peter says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Circle that word, Lord. Peter calls Jesus Lord. This is much further than master. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright notes that every time a New Testament writer, especially those writing for Gentile audiences as Luke was, used the word Lord, it's politically loaded. Lord is the title given to Caesar, the supreme commander in the Roman world, the one with power over life and death who was worshipped as a deity. And so every time in the Roman world where someone says Jesus is Lord, the subtext is Caesar is not. And that's a confession that could get you killed. The word Lord seems so small to us. It's really not small at all. Let's reclaim the significance of the word Lord. When we say that Jesus is Lord, we're also confessing that money is not. When we say that Jesus is Lord, we're acknowledging that status is not. When we say that Jesus is Lord, we're saying our political affiliation is not, that our work is not Lord. That all the things that hold us captive, we're saying that those things are not Lord. Jesus is. And so here's where I'd like to end this morning. What might it look like for you to call Jesus Lord in each of these areas we've seen in our text today? What might it look like for him to be Lord over the way you use your hands? And over your stuff. For him to be Lord in your workplace. Lord enough to handle your complaints and your sass. For him to be Lord over your body. And for him to be Lord over your sin. Here's the thing. Jesus is interested in our big yeses. Absolutely. He wants to make us fishers of men, to leave everything behind and follow him. He's also interested in the sort of yeses that Peter makes for 10 verses before he leaves 
everything to follow Jesus. The seemingly small, insignificant yeses. Jesus is interested in all of them. He wants us to say yes to him in each and every corner of our lives. That we might participate with him in what he's doing in those places. Friends, all moments are key moments. It's these little yeses that soften Peter's heart. So that when Jesus tells him that he will be a fisher of men, and when Jesus invites him to leave everything and follow him for the sake of the world and the glory of God, that Peter is able to make, to respond with the big yes. And so friends, let's be the sort of people that say yes in the little things so that we might also say yes in the big things for the sake of the world, to the glory of God, that we might participate with him in the redemption of all things. Will you stand with me and pray? Gracious God, thank you that for you every moment is holy, that they're all key moments. And I pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see, to pay attention to those corners of our lives, the seemingly small or the ones that we might overlook. And I pray, God, that you would give us courage to respond to you in those places with yeses. That we might be formed and transformed to go where you send us for the sake of the world and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.